Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast. This platform is dedicated to analyzing the implications of unfair economic designs that are generating inequitable economic outcomes. From time to time, we invite global leaders from academia, industry, government, and civil society to share insights on how to address some of the pressing social and economic issues of this era. From practice and policy to research and scholarship, our guests are among the best in their fields. I'm Fred Olayele, your host. The digital revolution is radically changing the global payment landscape. And this is our focus today. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the digitization of the global economy was gaining steam. Innovation is a major driver of trade financial integration, investment, knowledge transfer, and development. And this underscores the importance of harnessing the benefits of technology to ensure that more segments of society benefit from the open technology that is increasingly characterizing the global economy in the post-pandemic era. It is particularly important to discuss how marginalized groups can benefit. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest on today's episode. He's a renowned industry thought leader who is particularly passionate about the intersection between sustainability technology, and finance, and the impact digitization can have in narrowing the trade finance gap and enabling sustainable supply chains. His name is Michael Vrantamitis. Michael is the lead industry principal for Finastra's Lending Business Unit, which covers cash management trade and working capital management, retail and corporate lending. He also advises several startups and is a member of the World Trade Board. Prior to financial, Michael spent 25 years with Standard Chartered, spanning both wholesale and retail clients, as well as investor relations, working in Hong Kong, London, and Singapore. He was the global head of trade finance products and most recently responsible for the bank's trade finance business with European and American headquartered companies. Michael has a degree and master's in economics from the University of Warwick. Welcome, Michael, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Fred, and uh, thank you for having me on, uh, on your podcast. Sure. So let me jump right into the first question. 
As you know, the global economy is under so much stress right now. Uh, beyond the suffering and humanitarian crisis from the crisis in Ukraine, we see that inflation and supply chain constraints constitute a major blow to the ongoing uh, recovery. I'm really interested in your perspective on what all of these dynamics, you know, mean for universal access to financial services, particularly in the context of the ongoing uh, digital revolution. So like an overview of the current state of the global economy, what do these trends mean for uh, financial services and financial access? So, yeah, so really, really broad question to start with. So, so thank you for that. Um, I, th- I think when I when I start to think about universal access to to financial services, um, you know, we've made a lot of progress uh, 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 in, in the world around this. Um, and if you define if you define universal access as, you know, an adult having access to a transaction account or an electronic instrument to store money, send payments, receive deposits, uh, sort of as their basic building block to um, to manage their financial lives, then then we've seen a significant number of accounts opened in the last decade. I think the World Bank estimated that something 1.2 billion new accounts were opened over the last decade. Um, however, at the same time, there's still around 1.7 billion people who still don't have access to a basic account um, by the end of the last decade. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, you know, distance to, to, to financial service providers, lack of documentation, identity papers, you know, to even be able to open an account and, and the lack of trust in, um, in, in sort of financial services. Um, and when you, when you sort of look at it in context of what's happening in the world at the moment, um, the, 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 the world is going through um, a significant deglobalization, right? And, and war is accelerating um, this deglobalization, right? So trends are things like nearshoring, um, reviewing, you know, what needs to be a strategic, you know, governments are reviewing what needs to be a strategic sector, uh, what needs to be done on a just-in-case basis, what, what, what goods needs to be delivered on just-in-case basis versus a just-in-time mentality that has been prevalent for the last 20 to 30 uh, years, and all of these have have cost implications. Um, and 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 so, you know, as as globalization drove down the cost of goods and therefore inflation, um, so does this need for building resilience and supply chains essentially increase inflation. And the question that we still have to be answered, and 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 and, and um, you know, my economics was uh, degree was a bit too long ago, but but you know, how how much of this inflationary pressure is transitionary versus how much of it is is structural? Um, and you know, while um, sort of we've debated, you know, as, as as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm I'm a member of the World Trade Board. Um, we run the World Trade Symposium, um, and and we debate these issues quite a lot and and, re, and reworking the global rules-based system is going to be a significant challenge um, given how divided the world is today. Um, and so what, what we've been thinking about and deciding to spend time on focus on is some sort of key areas we believe that will be critical to ensuring a more equitable recovery from the, from the pandemic, um, from the war when it hopefully it ends. Um, and, and trade is going to be a key driver of this recovery. So 
there's sort of two areas I think that we're really focused on. One is the digitization of trade um, and the impact that has on, on reducing the trade finance gap. And the second is, is, is around actually focusing on um, more fair and equitable financing for um, smaller businesses. Um, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty broad. Uh, you covered a number of interesting aspects, you know, and I see that trade finances are at the center of it all. Uh, you talked about deglobalization. That's an interesting theme, you know. Uh, I know multilateralism was under sort of a jeopardy, you know, until at least, uh, one or two years ago, you know, but you also did talk about resilience and supply chains. I like the comment on transitory and structural inflation, you know. Of course, that's up for, for debate. Up for debate, right? Yeah, it's up for debate as always, you know. Uh, the, the devil is in the details, you know, and I think it's going to take a while to unpack the data and all of the different components. But all being said, you know, it's, uh, it's obvious that um, the economy is, is really in a special state in terms of the overheating and all of the um, trends that the whole world hasn't seen in a while. But let me uh, pivot from that to a related issue. Uh, in the academic literature, and even mainstream um, channels and media, you see that digital financial services, you know, for financially excluded and underserved populations, that's a topic that has really gained um, robust attention in recent years. And I'm wondering for giant industry players like your company, you know, Finanstra, what are the implications of all of this, you know, for, for asset accumulation, really, particularly in the context of women in rural areas and other players in the informal sector? As you know, when you talk about economic development in the global south, in the developing countries, informality is often a major issue, much unlike what you see in the Western industrial uh, countries. You see that in the global South, in developing countries, their economies are largely informal with many players, you know, not captured really in official uh, statistics. And oftentimes those folks are either in the small and medium um, uh, enterprises or in sectors where the conditions of working, you know, financial services and other things are not really uh, at par with what we find in the industrial society. So from a digital finance perspective, from the perspective of your company, you know, what do you make of that? What do you make of that? What do you think the implications are for, for those uh, actors? Yeah, thanks, Fred. I mean, I, I, th I think, first of all, from, from a financial point of view, obviously, we, we are a provider of, of, of software to, to financial institutions. And, um, and we, um, and we help 
orchestrate the the the, the, the emerging ecosystem of, of of open banking, and and I think that's really really important as a key trend. But you know, one thing that you know, if I want to just focus on one area and and and, and go back to my roots a little bit, but one one area in particular that I that I see as a a key trend here that's really really important is this emergent of plethora of pay, new payment systems, um, in particular when it comes to mobile, and this is having a really massive impact on on inclusiveness. Um, you know, M-Pesa in Kenya um, was probably the inflection point for me here in terms of bringing low cost, simple to use financial services to the unbanked in a way that had not really been seen before um, and, and, and has been replicated and innovated on in the, the world over. You know, initially when, when, when M-Pesa was launched, it was an SMS text message based system. So it didn't even require data services or a smartphone. It could be used from your old uh, Nokia N2290, or it was called in those days, if you remember back to those days. Um, so it was really easy to use. It was very low cost. Um, and it was distributed from the local duka, from the local shop. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, you, when, you, when, you, you know, when you go to Nairobi, um, you know, and, and, and you come across beggars in the street, they ask for money in terms of being paid by M-Pesa. Where you go to London, Beggars in London are still asking for spare change and asking for coins. Um, and so I think this is a real indication of how the world has really, really changed. And, and, you know, one country for me stands out in, in, in the way that it's addressed the, um, addressed the, the whole gap. And, and I, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the, the consumer side here, but for, for me, China is a fantastic example of how a coordinated policy response can have a direct and, and dramatic um, impact in terms of increasing universal access to financial services. You know, I think when, you know, and I, and I was based in Hong Kong for a number of years and, and, and an active China watcher and, and some of the financial inclusion policy objectives there really focused on a couple of key areas. If I remember one was really around universal access to basic um, banking services, which we discussed a little bit earlier, uh, you know, banking services and payment services, you know, the, the, the enabling productive credit, uh, you know, credit that's being used for production, for rural households and, and also um, uh, credit or bank credit and micro um, credit for micro and small uh, enterprises. And, and they pursued these, these, um, these objectives really for the past 16, 17 years. I think most of these, these um, things were set up in sort of the 2005, 2006 sort of timeframe and, and their experiences, you know, has some features in common with other countries, but there's also some, you know, like, the use of agents or the establishment of new um, institutional entities to to serve under serve populations, um, but there are some characteristics that are unique to China. Um, uh, so, for example, the the the, the they had they, they created a significant role for development oriented financial service providers, such as you know policy banks, such as village banks, micro credit companies, and rural cooperatives, and from zero basically zero that they had in 2005, they've got over 10,000 of these banks set up today. Now, obviously, China is a big country, billion plus population, but, but the, the scale is, is incredible. Um, and, and, and they focus on the last mile provision being provided by the, the, the China Postal Bank. And then there was this proliferation of non-bank digital payment platforms uh, linked to e-commerce and in particular social networks. Um, and, and, and so where Kenya had M-Pesa, you know, China had services like WeChat, which introduced We, we, we Pay, uh, they had Alipay, and, and these are from behemoth companies like Tencent and Alibaba. 
that really transformed financial services in the country. I mean, I, I remember um, going to China in the mid two mid 2010s and then I was a regular visitor. I was going every month and, and over a series of year or two, it went from a cash-based economy to a, to, to literally you had to pay with your WePay or your Alipay. Otherwise you couldn't pay. It was, it's a significant tra- transition. Um, and, and, you know, while there's, um, while there's been a, you know, a, a sort of huge progress in these sort of areas, there's still a long way to go, right? Um, and, and, and actually, we did a really interesting survey, um, a sort of state of the nation survey on financial services in, in 2021, where we interviewed sort of nearly 800 um, professionals at financial institutions across you know, all the continents. And there were three key trends that were coming out of out of this, right? Which is one was really around artificial intelligence. The second was mobile banking. And the third was what, what is described as banking as a service or embedded finance. And I think these trends are really going to have an impact on, on universal banking. And I, and I think you, 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 you asked the question around um, asset accumulation, right? And I think what's, what's fairly clear is the research shows that you know, as the, as individuals have access to, 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 to financial services or even basic financial services, they start to save and invest. Um, they, they're, they're more able to cope with unexpected short-term shocks. Um, and, and the improvement, there's a, there's an improvement in the day-to-day management of finances. Um, rather than using, you know, more exploitative informal sources of credit. And, and I think for, for women in particular who are, who, who, who in, in the emerging markets, as you, you, you and I both know as Africans, right, are, are far more responsible with money. Um, and, and therefore, I think they stand uh, to benefit a, a lot more. Well, this is, uh, this is quite apt. Uh, I like the comparison, really, between London and uh, Nairobi, you know, how uh, low-income earners and even beggars, you know, would prefer to do things through MPs while in London, you know, you're still asking for cash or whatever. And, and that goes a long way to really um, underscore how technology is, you know, helping regions like Africa to, to leapfrog like they call it in the literature, you know, of course, remains to be seen what the next um, decade or two would mean in the context of the uh, fourth industrial revolution, you know. But I, in light of uh, what you just said and all of the different components, I think risk is one thing that really comes to mind here. And as I think about it, you know, you, you look at the challenges with uh, digital finance in the context of regulation, you know. You look at a lot of the regulatory issues from money laundering to terrorism financing, consumer protection, you know, competition, and what have you. I, 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 I wonder what the risk management strategy is for your group, you know, Given the different approach of uh, of digital finance, when you compare traditional delivery models in retail financial services, you know, to uh, 
technology-driven platforms like yours? What's your risk management strategy? What are the pros and cons? What are you doing well? What are some of the areas where the flux and the dynamic nature of, of the digital economy, you know, I want you to balance those two perspectives and maybe you can provide some insights. No, sure. Um, look, I think, um, I think it all starts with digital identity um, of individuals and, and of companies, right? Um, it's understanding who you are, who owns what directly or indirectly. And, and the, the financial system has invested billions of dollars more than billions of dollars in trying to uncover money laundering, terrorism, financing, sanctions. Um, and, 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 and the reality is that a lot of that money is essentially waste um, because, um, you know, the systems that are there are very um, manual based um, that, that have been invested in over the, over the last decades. And I think what we're seeing is a, is, is a significant shift in the way that um, this is going to work in the future. So, um, I'll give you a good example. So, so we, um, we, we launched an initiative with the International Chamber of Commerce called the ICC Tradecom. And the idea of the ICC Tradecom was to, um, to, to create a, a market for um, SME, SMEs to, to get access to financing as part of um, trying to bridge the gap. And, um, and we've launched in Ecuador. Okay, so you asked me why Ecuador? Ecuador is, is, is really a, um, an interesting um, market because it has a digital invoice and, uh, system, an e-invoice system. So the underlying data for transaction of goods is already digitized. So therefore, providing a marketplace that connects to that digital platform that is government-initiated creates the opportunity to automate risk scoring, to automate KYC and onboarding, to provide data to financial service providers of the underlying transaction, the, 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 the participants in that transaction, so that they can make fast um, credit decisions and onboarding decisions. And, and so really digital identity is going to be really critical in, in how, how this evolves over time. Now, that's domestic and domestic is, and, and domestic, whether it's domestic lending or domestic payments, is generally less of a challenge. But I think in the future will require a lot more around digital identity. Digital identity is going to be really critical, and it's 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 important for markets to invest in and for governments to invest in digital identity, both for corporates as well as for um, individuals. And we've seen that in some African countries, but not in many. Um, I think the real issue for less developed countries is, is, is the participation in the global financial system, especially in terms of dollar financing and payments. And this has traditionally been done through correspondent banking. And we've seen a, a hor- horrific reduction in correspondent banking over the last decade and a half. Um, to some extent, to extent that some banks and even some countries are excluded from the global financial system. Um, and they're really, and, and only the, the, the real only choice that, 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 you know, financial institutions globally have is to raise their standards um, of, uh, of money laundering, terrorism and, uh, and, 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 and um, you know, anti-money laundering practices and sanction practices 
to the standards that are expected from the U.S. regulators, and that that that, that strays into difficult uh, geopolitical areas. Uh, but in order to participate in the global economy, it, it requires both capacity building in terms of capability build, um, as well as investment. I mean, look, the good news is today that the tools that large financial institutions in the West have spent billions and billions of dollars on are today much, much cheaper and more effective than a decade ago. They're available to purchase as a service, as it was supposed to, as a on-premise implementation that costs a lot more money to, to run. Um, but the bad news is that there's no let up and it's very easy for a clearing bank's compliance department or in, 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 in New York to stop doing business with a bank due to the cost versus risk versus um, reward equation not stacking up. I think the other important thing around risk is about data protection and consumer protection. Um, and it's, 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 it's really about, you know, in some markets, there's no data protection. The state can access all your data. And I'll leave it to your imagination to guess which ones. Um, but on the flip side, it can lead to faster progress in providing universal access to finance. So access to data has led to huge innovation, lower costs, greater access. But the question is whether the cost is worth it. And that's a question that the consumers in the West are definitely increasingly seeing this as an invasion of privacy, particularly, um, you know, and you're seeing a bit of a backlash towards some of the, the, the large tech um, firms. And it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen in terms of pricing and access in, in the new gig economy. Um, will people pay for privacy with no advertising or not? Or will they accept providing their data for lower pricing? So I think this is going to play out in the same way in the digital finance space. And I see a sort of a, a parallel to what's happening. Um, and, you know, banks are heavily governed by privacy rules, but, you know, fintechs are less so. And in some markets, fintechs have been, have been loosely regulated in order to, to accelerate innovation. And I think it's a positive thing. And, 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 you know, for example, in China, you're seeing increasing regulation of some of the behemoths, uh, Tencent and Alibaba, Alibaba that I mentioned previously. So I think, you know, once it reaches a certain impact on the economy where it starts to potentially have implications on the stability of the financial system, that's when the central bank gets involved. Awesome. Many, many issues are covered here, you know, quite, um, quite elaborate, but I think the issue of uh, digital identity, you know, that's something that really um, struck, you know, because it's such a complicated matter, you know, and the whole disparity in terms of how countries in the global north, you know, how they're able to handle that, you know, and you compare that to issues around infrastructure and capacity, you know, in the developing and emerging uh, economies. That's quite insightful. I know COVID-19 is, uh, I mean, it has dominated the debate in the last two years. And as much as um, it is important to look at issues from a post-COVID lens, you know, uh, it appears that that's something that will be on the front burner of major policy debates, you know, for, for years to come. 
and, and so now I want to look at things from the perspective of uh, the education sector, you know, if you look at learning and uh, education opportunities, how it's become a mix of a bag, you know, COVID has really, that this sector has caused a lot of um, innovations and new opportunities. And at the same time, we know that for kids from low-income backgrounds, you know, they have been disproportionately affected in terms of having access to broadband and other uh, learning opportunities. So in a way, the pandemic has become an accelerant, you know, for the ongoing transformation in the education sector. If you look at increased trends in digitization, you know, it will be difficult to reverse. The, the thing I'm wondering now is from your perspective, you know, are there specific digital finance products and services that can incentivize participation, you know, by traditionally disadvantaged and financially vulnerable groups, the usual groups that we've talked about, you know. So are there ways that those products and services can help to reduce, you know, the upfront cost and other long-term debt associated with uh, participation? What is your group doing about that? Or do you have some strategy, you know, uh, that can help to, to to look at the trend, you know, for for years to come. Yeah, no, no, sure. Um, so, so, so I think I think um, the, the the trend in the in in, in the finance world is, is similar to to the education world, right? In that we had some long term trends, similar and different. So, so there there, there were some long term term trends around digitization and. You know, COVID nineteen has been an accelerant, right? Um, you know, the 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 the, the, the I think the the phrase that uh, was written in one report that I that I really loved was, you know, um, paper is the Achilles heel of trade. Um, and it was proven during the during COVID nineteen, um, and that's why trade digitization is such a critical topic. And maybe I'll talk about a bit a bit more about that a bit later. Um, but it, it's, it's also led to people realizing that they can digitize, uh, because they were forced to, and they had no choice. And the, 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 it, it, the, 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 the naysayers have reduced. So therefore the trend is unstoppable. Yeah. And, and I think there's a number of, there's a number of trends. Um, and, and, and I've talked a little bit about, um, embedded finance and, and banking as a service, but but this trend of embedded financing um, is having an immediate impact on on financial inclusion, um, and what it's doing is enabling a, a wide range of interaction points that have access to far more transactional data that can leverage banking as a service to offer new solutions to their customers and their customers are basically broader. So in the consumer space, what does this mean? It's see, we see this emergence of neobanks and there's a lot of neobanks, not only in the West, but increasingly um, in the South, South corridors um, and, and other operators like telecom companies that are now offering um, consumers ask, access to basic banking, 
or buy now, pay later schemes. Um, and in the SME financing space, we see this as embedded finance into ERP systems, enterprise recourse planning or the accounting systems. And, and we see the emergence of solutions such as deep tier supply chain financing, which are leveraging new technologies like blockchain or using you know, Internet of Things to facilitate machine to machine payments based on st- smart contracts. Right. So all of these solutions essentially have a lower cost um, and make or, or make financing available at lower rates than they would otherwise have been possible. So let me let me be, be, be quite specific. Right. So. um uh, let me just give a particular sort of high level example. So, so in deep tier supply chain financing, so the buyer at the, at the end of the supply chain is usually the most credit worthy, right? So let's say it's a big US retailer, I don't know, uh, Walmart or something, right? And they're buying tailored shirts. Um, and they buy these tailored shirts from, 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 from a factory in China. The Walmart usually would be financed at less than 1%. Right. If you go to the credit default market, you know, the, the, the credit markets, they'd, they'd probably be financed at less than 1%. Um, but let's say it's 1% for, for argument's sake. Um, and it's investment grade rates. Uh, so it, it'll buy shirts from a tier one supplier, sort of one level down supplier uh, in China. And if they were borrowing, they would probably be borrowing at, say, 4%. Okay. But that tier one supplier also then needs to buy buttons, right? So it'll maybe buy buttons from a small second tier supplier based in Bangladesh, who for argument's sake would borrow at 10%, okay? And so what deep tier financing allows is for that payment obligation from Walmart to pass through the supply chain so that second tier supplier can be financed at a rate that's closer to 1% than 10%. And, And that's a very practical example of how some of the new technologies are having a significant impact on on the cost of financing through supply chain and why supply chain finance is, is, is really, 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 really critical. Um, and, and when we, you know, and I talked a little bit about what the World Trade Board was doing and, and, and the two, two elements that we're really focusing on. Um, you know, the digitization of trade is really, really critical to enable all of this to happen, right? So traditionally, you know, I talked about trade being the Achilles heel, a paper being the Achilles heel of trade. You know, traditionally paper, you know, traditionally trade is done on paper. And there's billions of pieces of paper in circulation at any moment in time to facilitate trade. Let, let, let's forget about the economic, imp- uh, the, the, the environmental impact of that. But, you know, Maersk, who's a global shipping company, have said that a simple shipment from East Africa to Europe can go through nearly 30 stakeholders. Um, including nearly 200 different interaction points and communications across a network of shippers, forwarders, ocean carriers, ports, customs authorities, financial institutions, insurance companies, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of them, right? And, and moving this whole ecosystem to digital, um, and I don't, know, I don't know if you've done, if you've studied lean manufacturing, but you'll understand that it's not simple because each stakeholder is in its own silo and they're all individually optimizing their own workflow and no one is optimizing the end-to-end process. So solving for it is not just a technology problem such as implementing a single customs window. Um, It's also a standards issue. 
um, which was brought to life by the International Chamber of Commerce Working Group that I co-chaired on the digitization of trade through this ICC digital trade roadmap that we we put together. And there were sort of there were there were a couple of key pillars to this roadmap. The first was really around government enabling the legal framework, such as delivering on single customs with windows, which are a key part of the WTO trade facilitation agreement, um, which uh, which was a ground you know, which is a ground banking initiative to reduce costs and red tape in both trade and trade finance. And 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 they, they were you know was signed. I think it was agreed uh, came into force in 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 February 2017, if I remember correctly. I think I was I think I was there at the Nairobi round, um, and um, and that's where I saw the beggars, you know, using the <laughs> using Invesa, um, um, and it was ratified ratified by, by by a large proportion of the WTO membership, and and that that's expected, you know, if, if if that's implemented fully, it's expected to reduce global trade costs by an average of about fourteen and a half percent. With with Africa and other least developed countries enjoying a larger reduction in trade costs, you know, it would add something like two point seven percent to world export growth, and more than half a percent to 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 world GDP growth in the next decade. Now, yes, please, right? Um, but but in terms of legal frameworks, you know, the, the key ask that we had was for governments to implement um, Unicral's modern law for electronic transferable records. Um, we call it Melita as an affectionate name um, because it's, it's quite a mouthful. Um, essentially, it, it's trying. It, it, the, 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 the model law is about treating data like paper. Yeah, and we've we've started to see implementations in several countries, including Singapore and Bahrain, um, as some of the first countries. And uh, you know, we're expecting the adoption under English law in uh, well, hopefully next month. Um, and, uh, and 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 really. This uh, this is quite a significant um, um, shift um, because if you get this new you know there's a, there's a number of new rule sets as well that we've launched such as um, the universal rules for digital trade transaction that enable corporates to agree to exchange information di- digi- uh, digitally and 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 this whole setting the legal infrastructure out is a really important part. You, it's very difficult. The technology is there to, to connect and to exchange information, but if it's not legally accepted in the court of law, it won't happen. Okay. Um, or the customs won't accept a digital transaction, a digital data instead of the, 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 the a document. It won't happen. Um, and, and, and the second, um, the, the other key pillar is standards. And several of the board members of the World Trade Board are heavily engaged in the Digital Standards Initiative or have been involved in launching it. And it really aims to bring together all the relevant standards around um, the ecosystem of trade, uh, such as electronic bill of lading standards, um, um, invoice standards, uh, letter of credit standards, um, and really make them available to the trade community and drive this interoperability discussion. Okay. But I think I think this whole area of digitization of the underlying trade is, is is one where we're on a journey. It's really really important. It's going to be a critical building block um, for um, for reducing costs, enabling SMEs to export more, um, and uh, and have a positive impact on the economy. 
the second area, um, the second area that um, that we've been focusing on is really around enabling more um, equitable and fair access to finance for SMEs. Um, the Asian Development Bank has done a landmark study back in, um, I think it was 2015 initially or 2014, I don't remember exactly, um, where they estimated the, the, the trade finance gap at about $1.4 trillion, $1.5 trillion. Um, that, that has since expanded to about $1.7 trillion, according to the latest report, and really is a direct result of COVID. Um, and the vast majority of trade finance transactions get rejected um, for smaller companies. Uh, female-owned businesses, as we discussed earlier, also have a higher rejection rate. And the ADB also estimated that a 10% increase in available trade finance could, bo- could boost jobs or employment by 1% globally. So digitization is going to make a significant um, impact on this. Um, and there's a lot of literature about what is causing these gaps, what the key issues are. Uh, and similar to where we were with the digitization of trade before we had a roadmap in the middle of the last decade, there is nothing there to explain how to systematically address the financing gap in a fair and equitable way. So I see this, I, I see the, the, the piece of work that we've kicked off at the World Trade Board is really about how do we develop a roadmap, we are developing a roadmap to cover the technology aspects, the legal aspects, along with practical public private solutions to bridge this gap. And uh, we started it and uh, hopefully uh, we just started it. So hopefully we'll be able to report back in a, in a year or so as to, as to where we're getting, how we're getting on. Yeah, thank you, Michael. That's uh, quite detailed, you know, quite detailed. And I see you, you dug up a lot of issues. It reminds me, you talk about the whole digitization, you know, moving from uh, the paper element, you know, to the digital component. Um, I mean, earlier in my earlier in my career, I also used to work in trade finance with Citibank back in the day, about two two decades ago, you know. And I know then there was this uh, software called uh, Obiflow, you know, that Citibank procured in the trade finance um, department. And it was meant to digitalize a lot of uh, the images from letters of credit, guarantees, and all of the other trade finance um, uh, paperwork, you know. And it used to depend on some special imaging capabilities, you know, to reduce the vast amount of uh, papers, you know, into some digital component. That, that then would enable processing and other things to happen. And as we were talking, you know, it just struck me like, wow, it's been, it's been about 20 years, you know, since then. I can only imagine, you know, how much uh, progress. And no one could have imagined back in the day, you know, that digitization would even, you know, uh, be at the pace that we're seeing now, not to mention what we have seen in the last uh, two years even. So, very well captured, you know, and I think on the central banking aspect, perhaps this is like the right time to bring this in. So, quickly, when you look at uh, the rise of 
new digital payment instruments, you know, and central bank digital currencies. I mean, a lot of implications as well for the future of trade and commerce, you know, in the context of payment and settlement infrastructure. And I know a number of countries have begun to also uh, introduce their platforms and all of that. Uh, so I'm wondering, what is, uh, what is your position on this? Where do you see things going, uh, especially in the, in the developing and emerging uh, economies? I'm interested in how you see you know, the future of uh, central bank digital currencies. That's, that's of uh, particular interest. To me. All right, cool. Uh, well, look, uh, it's really interesting about your um, your trade finance career, and uh, you know, um, it's it's it, things have moved a long way. I mean, today you can you can um, automatically check um, documents. You know, they get scanned in, OCR'd, um, compliance checked, and um, and, uh, and 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 checked under UCP six hundred within uh, within minutes. Compared to the hours and hours that it used to take, and then that that that's available now, and we're seeing a lot of banks adopt that type of technology, which reduces the cost. And when you reduce the cost of trade finance, it has a positive um, impact on the on the global economy. Um, so central bank digital currencies. Um, I I think it's really early in this conversation, and and I don't think it's going to have a significant impact on financial inclusion in the next decade, um, and and it's not going to have a significant impact on payment systems for a little while, but it could be a really, really good policy instrument or a really good instrument for inclusion as well as payment systems, right? And 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 the key difference that that I see with central bank digital currencies is that, you know, um, instead of holding um, a bank account that then holds an account with the central bank, so your your risk is on the on 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 the on the bank. You know, I used to work for City, right? The city has been through its ups and downs over time. Um, and a central bank digital currency acts like cash, right? But it's not cash, it's digital, it's digital cash. And so instead of having a claim on your financial institution, you'd have a direct claim on the central bank for the currency that you hold. Um, and, and, and I think there's a lot to be seen as to, as to how central bank digital currencies are going to pan out. You know, will they be licensed through financial institutions? Will they be held directly? So will you have a mobile wallet or a, a, a digital wallet directly with the central bank? Or will you have your digital wallet with your financial institution who then has it with the central bank? Will it only be financial institutions? Will it be other players? Um, with the, will your digital identity be attached to the wallet and to the money? Or will it be tokenized in that in the same way that physical cash is today? If I hand you cash, you don't know that it came from me, but you've got it, right? Um and I think these decisions will differ, may, may differ by market. And, 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 and how they differ will then have implications on how payment infrastructure will work in the, in the future. Um, and I think, see, I think central bank digital currencies sort of should be seen in the context of the digitalization of economies and this growing central centrality of data. And we've touched on it a bit, a bit on personal, particularly on, around personal data, both in the economy and the, and, and the monetary system. This, this growing role of data brings many opportunities to reduce the information asymmetries, reduce costs or cut costs, and enable new forms of money, right? So 
So data may lead to new challenges around competition, privacy, and integrity. Um, and only people are starting to begin to, to think about these things and grapple with them now. Um, and, and as you've seen in the, in the gig economy, right, these network effects that, that are inherent to money, because money, you know, it, it, it circulates multiple times through the economy, right? So, so it has a network effect. Um, you know, new private players could quickly dominate the monetary system, leading to serious competition concerns, uh, that could work against the public interest. Um, and, and I mentioned before, right, this, this whole dominance of big tech has serious implications for data privacy and the public's acceptance for the use of their data. Um, when it comes to, to, to what central banks are doing the, the, around this, the, the, there's a lot of research, um, but I think there's been a number of pilots um, in this space with, a number, with, with, with quite a few central banks. I think probably like 10 or so central banks have sort of been the thing in this space. I mean, Ukraine is the one that we mentioned, Ukraine, Ukraine came to show that they were, uh, they've got an active digital currency. China has an active digital currency. Um, Bahamas, um, the, the sand, I think it's called, um, has theirs, Korea, Sweden. Um, a lot of it is going to depend on how, the implication of payments is going to depend on what role the central banks play. I think with the right structure, it could strengthen the credibility of digital money. Um, and if it's got the right governance that comply with data protection regulations, they could ensure that payment information is only accessed for permitted purposes, like such as countering illegal services, in which case I think it'll, it'll, it'll provide a really interesting um, alternate to, 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 to traditional fiat currencies. But the reality is that, uh, that it's not going to just happen overnight. So there's going to be potentially some sort of transition and we're not, not quite sure how that's going to work just yet. So I think it's a really interesting area. I, from my own point of view, it's just a little bit early to, to, to really predict how things are going to pan out and on not not been researching it to the to the level perhaps I should. Uh, thanks, Michael. And I think I uh, didn't put you on the uh, spot, you know, but I know that um, that's an area that is of interest, you know, to players in the digital finance space. But like you rightly said, it's um, it's a rapidly evolving space. And I think even every week you have a a lot of information, new papers and um, opinions. And I'm also actively researching that space, you know. I know uh, in the African context, even, both Nigeria and Ghana, I think they released some papers recently on what they are doing, you know, some different uh, platforms. I also know that continent-wide, the uh, African um Exports Import Bank in Cairo. I know they also have a new platform that is looking at payment systems and how all of those things are coming together. You mentioned uh, China, Bahamas, you know. So remains to be seen, but as always, you know, there are opportunities for incremental policy innovation. And I mean, policymakers have their roles, their academic institutions and Researchers can help, but I feel like industry, you know, industry players like financial and uh, other other uh, tech giants uh, have major, major, major roles. We are running out of time, so I'm going to uh, give you the last question here as we 
wrap-up. And that's around the whole global payment landscape. You know, the digital revolution has radically transformed everything. And when you think about the physical digital integration applications and how those apps, you know, are dominating everything from communication to online shopping, digital education platforms, mention it, you know, it is just too hot. Things are changing every minute. So what do you think, uh, what are the major implications again, for vulnerable and marginalized segments of society. These are folks who have limited or no access to these resources, you know. And when I talk about vulnerable, marginalized segments, let's be specific about these folks. Let's be specific about them. Let's be specific about their challenges, you know. We are talking about low-wage earners. We are talking about women. We are talking about youth. We are talking about rural traders, micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises, people with disabilities. What do these things mean for them? Let's, let's use that question to wrap things up. What do these things, all of the analysis... Nice, a nice, simple question to wrap up, hey? Okay. What do they mean yeah, for them? Yeah, no, for me, it's about two things that, 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 that are working in tandem. You know, firstly, it's about reducing the cost of delivery of financial services, which is happening through digitization of finance. And, 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 and we've discussed that in, in, in great detail, right? Um, and the, the second aspect is what, what, what you raised, right? It's, it's about, you know, the bridging, bridging of what, what people call the digital divide, right? and providing internet and device access. Because it's not just the internet, it's also the device um, to, to vulnerable and marginalized populations. I mean, look, if 20 years ago, you know, and still just to an extent today, you know, the issue in order to access financial services was you had to walk 40 miles to the nearest bank branch and they would only serve certain customers, right? So, so you might walk there and they won't serve you, <laughs> okay? Um, today, Accesses from anywhere, right? With a much broader definition of, of, of customers served. But the anywhere is dependent on the device and internet access. Um, which is precisely why solutions like Impesa became so popular so fast because the, 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 the cost of the device and the cost of, uh, and, and, and the requirement for broadband access was significantly lower. And it's, it's the innovation in these spaces that I think will, um, will, um, you know, in, in, enable it to happen. But, but, you know, I think that there's a, there's, we can have a whole different conversation, a whole, whole conversation on another wide podcast on the digital divide and how to solve for that. Um, but you need to solve both problems. You can't solve one independently. And I think, I think that's, that that's really where I would, I would come from. And, you know, from, from our perspective as a technology and software provider, it's really about how do we help solve the first problem and enable, um, a, a, you know, lower cost access to financing. And I, I talked about banking as a service and, and, and really we see a massive trend in this direction where, you know, 
reducing the, the the cost of the rails allows for more providers to offer the, the services to, to a wider group of customers. Um, and I think that's that's the starting point that, that, that we can hopefully have an impact on. What's your advice? One piece of advice for all of the players. You know, you talked about the World Trade Board and what you guys are doing to standardize, you know, digital ecosystems, what you are doing on regulations. And I was also happy to hear about public-private uh, partnerships, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, it's obvious that a multi-stakeholder governance uh, model is important to move the needle. But one major piece of advice for all of these stakeholders in 20 seconds. No, I, I think if, you, if you're trying to have a personal impact, then it's about being very clear about the problem definition and what you're trying to solve for. Identify areas that are within the sphere of influence and act on those. Uh, and, and that's very much what we're trying to do. Cool. Well, uh, we've come to the end of this um, session. And I really want to thank you, Michael, for uh, taking the time to, to share useful insights with our audience, you know. And many thanks to the audience for listening to this uh, episode of the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast. As already discussed, the importance of harnessing the benefits of technology to ensure that more segments of society benefit from the open technology that is defining the current era cannot be overemphasized. So many thanks again to Michael Frontamitis, you know, lead industry principal for financial lending business unit which again covers cash management, trade and working capital management, retail and corporate lending. Thanks to our production team for making this episode a reality. I'm Fred Olayele, and I look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Bye for now. <laughs>